All right, everybody, uh, welcome to the Flashpoint Podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host, as always. Uh, if you are listening on the app, please give us a subscribe to the show. Uh, today, uh, we are going to be joined by Representative Ilhan Omar. She'll be here in about four or five minutes. Um, we're going to be talking about foreign policy uh, both in Ukraine and around the world, as well as, uh, you know, some more local issues having to do with Minnesota, including her work to uh, push the Amir Locke uh, and no-knock warrant bill through Congress. Uh, but most recently, uh, she was one of two Democratic votes against the sanctions bill uh, that aimed at Russia for the attack on Ukraine. Uh, and she issued a statement on that. Uh, and I'm going to read some of that just while we wait here. Um, I oppose the suspending energy imports from Russia Act, a bill that mandates a complete ban on Russian oil imports. The president clearly already has the authority to take this step, evident in that President Biden announced such a ban yesterday. But putting the specifics into statute with no sunset and no conditions for lifting the ban creates a dangerous scenario, one in which we are taking today's policy question and making it tomorrow's political question. The last time Congress passed significant trade restrictions on Russia was the Jackson-Vanik Amendment of 1974. Like this bill, it was motivated by genuine concern for human rights and human security. It was not repealed until 2012, more than 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, well after its usefulness had expired. I have serious concerns that the suspending energy imports from Russia Act will become yet another clear example where a policy stays on the books well past its utility because the political will to lift it has never materialized. One thing that is very clear is that our dependence on oil means a dependence on tyrants, and this has always been true. There is no meaningful principle at play in a decision to ban Russian oil but seek it from Saudi Arabia instead, I'm also gravely concerned that this ban will mean ramping up domestic oil production. Yet another reason why we must move to a green economy that has proven to be the most reliable and cost-efficient. You know, one thing about this statement uh, that I think is really important is that there is no sunset provision on these sanctions. And we're, we're not even at the point anymore where we are still, you know, pretending that these sanctions are aimed at Russian oligarchs and at Putin himself. At this point, it's very clear that the argument that uh, we should cause as much pain to the Russian people so that they change their own government uh, is the principle at play here. Uh, and that's not only in the U.S., that's also uh, in Europe. And I'm going to – there we go. Hi, Congresswoman. How are you? I am good, Owen. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. I was just – reading your uh, statement on the sanctions uh, bill um, to the audience so that everybody could have kind of a, a general sense of that. Um, Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I think a lot of people haven't been able to read it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, <laughs> one thing I was just saying, and I guess I'll just use this as, as, as an entry into, into talking here is, you know, the lack of sunset and the way that these sanctions now seem like they're just targeted at the, Russian people is 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 certainly of concern, and I, I, I note that concern in the statement. Uh, 
and and it seems like that was i mean you you know you said that first so it seems like maybe that was the primary reason for for opposing the sanctions bill uh, certainly um as as you know the the president uh himself is able to impose the oil um ban and to have that be in statute in legislation um creates real serious complications in in diplomacy uh as well as you know having long-term implications uh for everyone right right and and i was also saying that it does seem as well like like there's not even you know a couple of weeks ago it seemed like these sanctions were going to be targeted and directed at putin and the and and the oligarchs this seems like it's more kind of targeted at the Russian economy and therefore the Russian people in general. <laughs> There's this uh, weird muscle memory that is like deployed when it comes to sanctions where we believe, you know, if we make the people uh, in, in the, in a country where, um, you know, we have leaders that are adversaries uh, somehow that's going to make the people rise up and, you know, dispose of, of that leader. Uh, and we certainly haven't seen that happen in Cuba. We haven't seen it happen in Venezuela. We haven't seen it happen in Iran. And you would think that we would learn from those mistakes um, and that we would use actual um, uh, sanctions that could possibly be impactful Um to to the people that we we want it to to impact, which is the actual leader and their supporters and the people who are a part of a particular administration. And if you notice, right, like we were way too eager uh, to deploy these sanctions, but we weren't as eager to put sanctions on on Putin. Um, in in this particular case, and I get you know I get that people are. Uh, moved by the moment, you know, I condemn in the strongest possible term what Vladimir Putin is is doing. I mean, the illegal invasion of Ukraine is heartbreaking for for everyone. Um, But as policymakers, we're not only supposed to consider the moment, but we're supposed to consider the implications our policy decisions have yeah. in the long term. No, 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 absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, that that's kind of a good way of, you know, looking at another aspect of this conflict, uh, which is, you know, the the crisis of, of all of the people, like the refugees, everybody moving, you know, just like this massive movement west. And obviously, uh, you know, with your background, you're certainly sympathetic to that. You know, you're talking about looking at people and and looking at the consequences of policy. Uh, what do you think the consequences of that aspect of of this conflict are going to be? And and how? And also, I think you know, like a secondary question is, um, you know, the, the difference in treatment uh, of these refugees and refugees from other conflicts, other wars in different parts of the uh, of the of the world. Yeah, I mean, the difference in the way that we are talking about Ukrainian refugees 
obviously who are largely white and the ways that we talk about black, brown, Muslim refugees from elsewhere is clear as day. Um, we are being told in many European uh, countries, you know, by a lot of pundits, uh, who deserves war, who deserves missiles, um, who's a good refugee and a good human. I do hope that, you know, this is going to be a turning point. Um, it's going to open the eyes of, of Americans and, and, you know, have them see that these very countries, countries like Poland, who have demonized and vilified um, and turned away refugees who were escaping similar horrific situations in Syria, in Libya, and um, Afghanistan, in Iraq, uh, are, are now, you know, behaving uh, differently. And I, I do hope that we get to a place where there is compassion for Syrian refugees, that there is compassion for Afghans, there is compassion uh, on on the part of, of the United States for our Central and South American neighbors. Yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely been seeing how very similar situations, whether they're, you know, in Europe and in South America are being are being portrayed as if they're uh, quite different. Uh, just, I guess, last last thing on Ukraine. Um, what kind of what kind of policy and what kind of uh, intervention, if any, from the U.S. would you like to see in the in the conflict? Uh, you know, given that you know the sanctions bill did not meet that standard. Uh, what what do you think should be done, uh, if anything, really? Uh, as far as as this conflict by by the U.S. and by the by our our allies in the West in, in general. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that you know it's it's been really incredible um, in in some regards to to watch uh, the the way that the the president um, President Biden has been uh, somewhat measured in um, in his response to. Uh, Putin and, and Russia's uh, illegal invasion of, of Ukraine. I think a lot of the targeted sanctions that we've uh, put on um, Putin and Russian oligarchs are going to be helpful. Uh, you know, I've I've said I support providing humanitarian um, support, not just to Ukraine, but some of the other countries that are taking in. Um, uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian refugees. Uh, I also think that you know military grade um, uh, support um, in military specific weapons, um, such as you know airplanes and, and missiles, I think are helpful um, as they uh, fight against um, this, this illegal invasion. Um, but I, I continue to have concerns about, you know, what happens when you flood small arms and ammunition in, into uh, a country. Um, and, you know, my, my concerns are not naively based. I think anybody who's been studying our history of, of doing that um, should realize, you know, why we should all be concerned, whether it's Afghanistan, whether it is my own you know, home country, the country that I was born in, um, which, you know, was during the Cold War was used as, as, a, as a, a proxy by both 
the Soviet Union and the United States in, in flooding, you know, small arms and, and ammunition um, within the Somali-Ethiopia war. Um, and we've certainly seen it uh, happen in, in Afghanistan. There's many cases um, uh, around the world uh, that should, should be a, a lesson um, in, in history, but oftentimes policymakers who are driven by, you know, the, the current poll um, refuse to, to pay attention. And, you know, and that's why I've done so much work on the Foreign, Foreign Affairs Committee in examining our sanctions policy and looking at, you know, what the dangers of providing certain military support in some of these countries um, has meant uh, you know the the kind of influx of, of refugees that we've witnessed the last two three decades. Um, we are now living in a time where there are more refugees and more people displaced than any time in history. Um, it's it's all rooted in some of these decisions that you know countries like ours um, and our allies have made uh, without any regard for the long term consequences. Yeah, it feels like they're. It feels like the long-term consequences. I mean, like it's something that is maybe not going to be felt for quite some time, especially with, um, you know, and and, yeah, and when they ahead. are felt, we will forget where they where, what the roots of it are, <laughs> right? Um, when when we ultimately see, not just the the kind of um, uh, displacement and and refugees that are produced. Uh, by the direct war um, that that Russia is waging in in Ukraine, which is now you know close to three million, but we're also going to see the 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 an influx of, of refugees and people who are being displaced by these severe um, you know sanctions that are going to produce economic hardship, where people are actually going to end up fleeing. Um, Russia and, and they're they're seeking you know they're they're going to become economic refugees uh, and you know five years from now we're we're going to see high numbers and we're going to say oh well you know maybe we should have looked at things a little differently um, and I, and I just hope that instead of being in that position, you know, of saying, I wish things were different, um, that when we do have the opportunity that we have the foresight to be able to, to, to see and predict because these things are easily predictable because history should be teaching us a lesson. Yeah, definitely. And, and of course, there are also like all of these foreign fighters who are going in there as well, who are going to, you know, uh, pick up arms and pick up uh, you know these these experiences uh, and and bring them back to to where they're from and you know it, it, in, engage in possibly engage in, in in whatever levels of violence. Um, you know, I wanted to uh, just kind of shift. Oh no, go ahead, go ahead. And to that, I I will say, you know, when when we we are engaged in in a conflict. I mean, I you know, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Libya or, or Yemen or you know, even Somalia and, and other places, we go into these these conflicts and, you know, obviously many people will say we have a moral obligation to get involved and, and save lives. 
but we get involved and you know there there might be a, a, an, an immediate win you know where we can wave a flag and say you know the bad man we went to go get is gone now um but ultimately when that country falls apart when everybody's uh life is now reduced into rebels and into rubble and you know they're they they don't have any economic um opportunity where there is clusters of terrorism that that you know um develop uh, in just like Libya and the western sahel which is um you know a, a consequence of of our involvement there um in in many regards we wash our hands and nobody is asked to to you know be accountable for it um and the the cameras are turned off you know we don't have any after report um uh, mechanisms there there is no lessons learned I've had people um come in front of the foreign affairs committee where I asked them questions about the decisions that they made if they have any regrets and you know if they could do something differently would they and almost always they have regrets they would do things differently uh and and they wish you know their people were paying attention more and that we were doing more but the 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 public opinion of what we should do shifts uh and politicians who employ you know the, these people um these analysts uh lose interest um because their their constituents aren't aren't paying attention anymore and so the cycle continues without any pause and you know as as somebody who who has uh, an understanding of what the long term impacts are who's made refugee by those long term impacts who's um you know deeply connected to people who who are feeling the pains of of these policies that we make in the moment without any afterthought uh i just always feel like it's it's necessary for me to say can we pause can we ask the right questions can we critically think about this it's it's not black and white things are nuanced you know we're dealing with human lives and uh involvements that create uh, an escalated situation never really minimize the number of people dying they usually increase yeah and, and you know that's that's kind of a good way to kind of pivot in uh just very briefly to talk about you know other conflicts that are going on around the world and you know in your statement on on the suspending energy imports from Russia act uh you say there's a slide and I'm going to quote it there's no meaningful principle at play in a decision to ban russian oil but seek it from saudi arabia instead um and of course saudi arabia is involved in this horrific war against yemen uh it, that's just been it, it's been going for years uh with with outright and, and and tacit uh US support uh you know it it does seem like there is a bit of a double standard here yeah i mean the the war in in yemen um and you know the the onslaught um that that is 
caused by um, the Saudi-led coalition, which you know is, is a coalition that that we are uh, a, a party to, um, has displaced more than two million Yemenis. Ha, ha, has now caused one of the worst humanitarian crises, where over twenty million people are at risk of um, starvation. You know, over 300,000 people have been killed, uh, including 11,000 children. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, about you, but I, I don't remember the last time I saw any of it uh, on, you know, national media um, or anyone uh, talking about it in, in any sort of serious way. Um, we still are... Uh, you know, strengthening our relationship um, with Saudi Arabia, even as they carry out um, this sort of uh, devilish war on on a country that is one of the poorest and most populated uh, country in in the Gulf. Right, right, and and it, it's I mean it's just brutal. Uh, to watch. Of course, uh, this conflict is possibly changing the U.S. stance towards Venezuela and Iran, uh, which I guess maybe potentially could have some effect on that. But if if so, it's still a long way out. And it doesn't change the shameful fact that we were uh, supporting it for so long, certainly. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, you know, when you when you think about the kind of um, uh, broad based um, sanctions that we have on on countries like Cuba, you know, Venezuela, and and Iran, um, and the fact that they are in statute and they're they're uh, codified in into law, uh, that has created less flexibility for any administration to to be able to to use those tools of of sanction as negotiating tool in diplomacy uh and the you know every administration ever since those sanctions have been uh put in place that have tried to you know sort of uh waive any of them doesn't have the the ability without consultation from congress and i and i think that that's where uh the the danger um is because you know we're we've essentially created economic uh, warfare without the ability to, to, to withdraw um, and, and end it. Absolutely. So, uh, so I know we only have a few minutes left. I know that you uh, uh, have some, have some uh, stuff to do with the Minnesota teachers, uh, which is a great thing that's going on that we can, we can talk about certainly, but I wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about the, uh, the the Amir Lock and Deadly No Knock Warrants Act, uh, you know, obviously uh, based on the killing of Amir Lock by Minneapolis police uh, earlier this year, I believe, um, uh, just really horrific situation. You introduced this on March first. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the bill and about um, you know its its prospects for moving forward? Yeah, I mean. Um... We we introduced the um, Amir Amir Lock No Knock um, uh, ban legislation because 
you know, we understood that his life could have been saved if actual safeguards in these no-knock warrants existed. Uh, too often we see these raids have severe and deadly consequences, um, not just to, to lives, but to also, you know, property damage and, and the trauma uh, that they, they cause when, even in the cases when, you know, a life isn't uh, taken, uh, and I and I just think it's really important for for us to to move forward. Um, the prospect of it passing, I think there is a lot of energy um, in the house side to to move, uh, and there's been some serious conversations um, on the Senate side um, to 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 see it move. Um, we're obviously all uh, really preoccupied with what's happening in in Ukraine uh, at the moment um, and so we'll we'll see but to to those who are listening call your representatives and senators and ask them to support it definitely definitely you know it does seem like Minneapolis and Minnesota in general have been kind of uh, just like these these points of conflict for, for these huge, you know, national moments, uh, you know, George Floyd, Amir Locke. Um, do you think that that is, uh, just a, just the circumstance or do you think it has something to do with the way that, that people in the city and people in the state are reacting to it? Something unique maybe about Minnesota? I mean, in, in Minneapolis, you know, we're, we're obviously dealing with, um, one of the most um, in, incompetent and uh, brutal, you know, police departments um, with, you know, city city leaders, um, a, a mayor who who refuses to to do the right thing and, and actually lead, um, and so that's that's why you're seeing these these instances happen without. Um, little accountability um, and and shift uh, in 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 the way that that we do um, policing and and public safety. Um, but but certainly to to your point, uh, you know we are special here um, in in Minneapolis. You know we um, are. Uh, a city um, full of people who who deeply care um, and aren't uh, afraid to to hold um, space uh, for for one another. And so, when when you see these um, police brutality insta- in instances that happen in Minneapolis um, become national news, is because the people of Minneapolis refuse to have these things um, be swept under the rug and, and they're willing to stand up for um, what is what is right. Great. And I, and I know we just had two more minutes, so I, I guess I would just ask you, if, can you just give, uh, just give us maybe like a quick one-minute kind of overview of the teacher strike, if that's even possible, but you know, and, and just kind of what people should be paying attention to there? Yeah, Minneapolis uh, teachers are out on strike. Um, their uh, negotiations for their new contract um, hasn't um, worked out because 
you know, the superintendents and, and policy leaders um, aren't willing to uh, take their demands to, to have smaller class sizes to be paid uh, a dignified wage um, to make sure that paraprofessionals um, and support staff uh, don't have to work more than one job, that there is support for um, mental health and um, health in, in general uh, for students in, in our school. They're basically asking for the city to care about our kids, to prioritize their education and to invest in the people that help um, educate them and prepare them for the future. Um, and as a former uh, union member, I, I'm always down for people, for workers who are willing to, to throw down and, and fight for um, their, their rights. So I'll be standing with them and will continue to stand with them until their demands are met. Absolutely. All right. Uh, well, Representative Omar, thank you so much for joining us, uh, for making time on this Monday. Really appreciate that. Um, and, and, and we'll be following the Amir Locke bill as well as, as, as your work in general. Well, thank you. This was fun. Great. Thanks. All right. Bye. All right. Well, so thanks, everybody. Uh, thanks, Representative Omar, for coming on. Uh, and, and thank you all for joining us uh, for today's show. Uh, remember to, if you are listening to this on the app for uh, replay, please remember to give a subscribe to the show. If you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and rate us uh, so that we can uh, continue to climb up the ranks. Um, so on Thursday, we're going to be joined by Ben Judah, uh, who is going to be himself hosting a conversation with Bernie Sanders on Friday. So it's going to be a bit of a preview there. Uh, we'll be talking with Ben about uh, progressive foreign policy and about Russia in general. Uh, he's written a couple of good pieces about what it's like to be a former expat who spent a lot of time there and then kind of watching what is happening right now uh, with the... Uh, the current government, the current regime there, and the way that they are clamping down on protests and clamping down on speech. So that'll be a good conversation. Uh, and again, so again, thanks, everybody. And thanks to Representative Omar for joining us. And we'll see you next time. All right. Bye.